In this week's study, we are going to be covering uh, the rest of Matthew 26, uh, picking up on verse 57, and then we're going to cover all of chapter 27. So today we are going to see um, Jesus, uh, the, the trial, if you want to call it that, uh, in front of the Sanhedrin. We're going to see uh, Peter's denial, which we covered last week, but we're going to go through that again. We're going to see um, Judas uh, take his own life. We're also going to see Jesus um, before Pilate, him being flogged, and then him carrying the cross to um, Golgotha or Calvary, and then his actual death, and then burial in the tomb. We've got a lot that we're going to cover today. And the reason why I wanted to do this is because uh, originally I was going to divide it so that we did the actual crucifixion and his actual death next week and then went into the, the resurrection. The reason why I did this and broke it up uh, the way I did is, is that this one's very dark and very heavy, but then next week is all about the resurrection. Now, Matthew in chapter 28 is very brief. Um, but I'm going to pull from all the Gospels um, and give the account of what happens in the, in the time in between um, when Jesus actually um, rises from the, the grave, uh, his resurrection, a, a, until um, the, the different accounts. Uh, not going to go so far as Pentecost, but going to go to the different accounts. We're going to talk about the, the road to Emmaus, which is a, an awesome story um, that I love. So <sighs> there's so much content in today's talk. Um, the actual final hours of Jesus's life uh, has been the content of so many books, so many messages. And my job here is not to go in and analyze or interpret. My job is to simply walk us through what does the Bible say. And I did pull from all four Gospels. So for the prep for this talk in particular, I made sure to do my research in uh, reading the full accounts from uh, the trial with the Sanhedrin all the way through um, the burial in the tomb of all four Gospels. And then I also pulled from uh, two commentaries, which uh, are, are common ones that I use. Um, oh, I don't have it here as a reference, but the, uh, um, the NIV application commentary is uh, a new one that I wish I would have gotten this at the beginning of going through Matthew. It's beefy, but I love these books. And I actually ended up uh, uh, buying the whole series over time used because they're freaking expensive to buy all of them. But this is a great resource, but it gets super in depth. Uh, and then also the Expositor's Bible Commentary is one that I've referenced for you guys before. Um, I also did use uh, the Bible dictionary that Zondervan has, uh, and I'll put the references below. Um, for these, but um, I wanted to make sure to cover as much content that was significant. I am not going to go into interpretation that much, meaning that in looking at, you know, you could talk about um, uh, Barabbas and, and comparing him to Jesus. You can talk about the two guys that are crucified next to Jesus. Um, you can talk about um, the, the gentleman uh, who has to carry Jesus's cross. These are all sermons that, that, that you could do in and of themselves uh, as interpretation of how we play a role in the day. My job today is we're just literally going to look at the passages in Matthew 
and pull from the other gospels where I think that it, it adds to it um, and see what the Bible says about this significant day in Jesus's life, it being his last of, from an earthly perspective. So um, that's the agenda of what we're gonna do, but before we actually open up the Bible and get into it, why don't you bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, be here now, speak through me. Lord, I pray that, uh, well, you would just put on all of our hearts, whoever is listening to this or watching this, um, the monumental significance of what we're gonna look at today. It's very easy for us to gloss over um, the passion of the Christ, the, the, the final hours of your um, human existence. And Lord, I pray that it'll permeate through with people today and people will really, as much as we are able to, comprehend what you went through, which is impossible for us to really understand. Um, but my hope, Lord, today is, is that we can try to have some understanding of it a little bit better than we do. Speak through me. Honor this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so before I open up to Matthew 26, I want to paint a little bit of a picture of the cultural uh, context, the historical cultural context of Palestine, Israel, in that day, what's going on? So you have the Sanhedrin, and I've talked about the Sanhedrin before. The Sanhedrin is the uh, Jewish council's council that's basically like their Supreme Court, but it's their governing body that um, all cases would go before the, the Sanhedrin to be tried. This was something that was, um, the council was created a long time ago um, and exists in the Old Testament. But what's happened in Israel at this point, uh, we're in the 30 AD timeframe, um, Rome is occupying Israel. So they have, uh, there's so much tension. There's humongous amount of tension that exists between the Roman occupiers that are overseeing um, and controlling Israel. They, they do run it. They do run it. They put into place Herod the Great, was put in as a leader over the Jews, as a, a, lo a, a local uh, authority over the Jews, put in place by Rome. Uh, and at this point where we're at now, you have the governor, who is Pontius Pilate, uh, who's also called prefect, uh, has a few different names, but he is the local magistrate, so to speak, that is representing Rome in uh, Jerusalem. His job is to keep the peace, but it is a powder keg that's going to explode. And you have, uh, on the Jewish side, you have uh, different perspectives. You have the Herodians, which we spoke about them before. Uh, this is a group that actually is a globalist perspective that does believe in the globe first as opposed to Israel second. They actually uh, liked to have Roman rule. The Herodians were a political group that wanted to have Rome rule over and then... Uh, Judaism um, would be secondary to that, and Israel would be second to that, Hebrews would be second to that. Then you have the Zealots. The Zealots are on the opposite side of this, where it is um, Israel first, but Israel first to the extent that we're gonna storm the capital, that we're gonna take up arms, that we are going to uh, fight and die for our um, 
Israel's right to rule themselves. They want to go to war. So that's the extent of what you have from the Jewish perspective. So there's so much tension. In fact, the three criminals that we're going to look at today, you have um, Barabbas, and then you have the two guys that are being crucified next to Jesus. All three of them are political insurrectionists. These are individuals on the zealot side of things that have taken political situation uh, to the extreme that Rome now um, is, has, is crucifying the two and uh, Barabbas is uh, held uh, in prison at this point. So w- the reason why I'm giving all of this historical context is so that you understand the Sanhedrin has rule over it from Rome, meaning that the Jews are allowed to govern themselves on small matters, but corporal punishment, the death penalty, they are not allowed to issue that. Rome controls that. So the Sanhedrin is allowed to do trials, do whatever they would usually do, pass their own laws, do whatever they're going to do, but not allowed to convict someone to death and execute them. Meanwhile, Rome has that over the top of them. Pilate, his job is to keep the peace, is to keep uh, Rome overseeing Israel and for the Jews to pay their taxes so that Rome can make the money and not have war. Now, just uh, a spoiler alert, it all explodes in 70 AD when Titus comes in and absolutely annihilates Jerusalem. Uh, not one stone is left on top of it, uh, itself. The whole temple is destroyed. This is what Jesus foretold only a few chapters ago at the beginning of Matthew 24. Uh, when Jesus says not one of these stones will stand on top of the other, he's talking about what's going to happen some 40 years from then when Titus comes in and absolutely destroys Jerusalem. So it is a powder keg that's ready to explode. So you need to understand the tension that exists there before we go into this. So now, um, enough talking from Dave. On that. I'm obviously going to keep talking. Um, so we're going to pick it up uh, in Matthew 26, 57. But there's, uh, I want to talk about Caiaphas just real quick. So you have the high priest Caiaphas. We've talked about him before. And as you recall, um, John 11, 47 through 53. Let's actually just flip to there real quick. Um, so 11, John 11, 47 through 53, but I'm going to give a little bit of context. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. It's very public. A lot of people know that he did this. And news gets back to Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin and the Jewish council, um, the Pharisees. And now this question comes up, well, what are we going to do with this guy? Um, They don't even acknowledge the fact that, oh my gosh, he just raised someone from the dead. Maybe he's divine. Maybe he is who he says he is. No, they want to kill him. And that has been their motive. And the reason why, we've talked about this over and over again, is is that the Pharisees, Jesus is uprooting the whole system. Jesus, in his ministry, look at the Gospels, the words he actually said, he has more harsh words for the religious elite, for the Pharisees, than he has for anybody else. He has all of this compassion and care for the sinner and for the person who admits their transgression, admits that they're faulty. He has so much passion and, and love for them, and he embraces them. But for the Pharisee, for that person that is supposed to be leading the people in Moses' seat, as as Jesus says. Um, He has all these harsh words because they are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look whitewashed and clean, but on the inside, they're dead. They're vipers. 
He has all these harsh words and he's uprooting their whole system. The Pharisees were the elite. They were the wealthy. They were the very, very top class. And Jesus is coming in and saying, uh, listen to them, but don't do as they do. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. Do not be like them. Watch out for the yeast that exists in them. It, it permeates through. And they obviously don't like that Jesus is saying these things, so they want to get rid of them. So what happens here in, in John's uh, gospel is, is that, okay, Jesus just um, raises Lazarus from the dead. So they're asking, well, what, what should we do? What should we do? And this is where um, Caiaphas actually prophesies um, so I'm going to pick it up on verse uh, 47. And the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. That's not a positive thing, the way he's saying this. So they're like, everyone's going to believe this guy. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Now, that is a threat that's not a real threat. They're saying that because, well, it's going to create unrest amongst the Jews, and Rome's going to use that as an excuse to, to, to take more control and to, to destroy the temple, which does happen. 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. We are going to see it happen multiple times today where the Sanhedrin is actually going to... Truth is going to be there, though it's hidden. So this is truth. So does Jesus unite Israel? Yes, he does. And the lost, scattered children of God. By one man dying, the Jewish nation is saved. All people are saved. But what he's saying is, is that one man dies so that Judaism, that the religion itself, can stay whole again. And this crazy guy that's calling, causing all this unrest will be They'll, everyone will forget this Jesus of Nazareth guy and everyone will go back to the way it was. That's what he means by saying this, but that's the, prophesi, the prophecy is true. What he does say is true. Okay, so Matthew 26, 57. Before I dig into this, uh, in, uh, in looking at all the different gospels, I wanted to step in and add little bits of information that Matthew doesn't cover, likely because he doesn't think it's significant to, to being told. And, and I can understand that. The one thing that, that is covered here is, is that the group that arrests Jesus, in John's gospel, before he goes to Caiaphas, they take him to Annas. A-N-N-A-S is the high priest. And this throws in some, some question. Well, wait a second. There's only supposed to be one high priest. How can we have both Caiaphas and Annas? Hi, Lexia. You just check it in. Get out of here. Go on. We're talking. Go lay down. <laughs> Sorry about that tangent, but I do love having the dogs here. Um, it is nice to... Uh, uh, whatever. Okay, Dave. Sorry. Lexia interrupted me. I'm going to keep going. Focus. Focus, Dave. Okay, so the question is, Annis, who is this guy? 
And is he the high priest or is Caiaphas the high priest? And I've seen two different uh, interpretations of it, two different schools of thought. One school of thought, Caiaphas was planted by Rome and that Rome wanted to have two high priests at the same time so that they had Roman influence in the Sanhedrin. What most people actually, the, the interpretation that I follow and believe is that um, Annas was high priest previous to Caiaphas, and he is Caiaphas's father-in-law. So he is his elder. He is the former high priest, and now Caiaphas is the next high priest. And as an elder, I would say that he is almost like the previous king, so to speak, in this idea. So he still has authority. He is not the official high priest. But in John's gospel, and you can read this for yourself, John 18, 19 through 24, after they arrest him, he first goes to Annas first, and then after that goes to Caiaphas. Another thing that I did read is that it's very likely that both Annas and Caiaphas, because they're in the same family and they're both high priests, it's very possible that their home was a gigantic mansion, the mansion of the high priest, and likely both of them lived in the same residence. So it very well could be that it was simply that Annas was there as the first person to um, see Jesus when he was brought to the house. Okay, so just a little context for you guys before we did. Okay, now that we're as far as we are in, let's actually start reading the Bible. So Matthew 26, verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. The many false witnesses came forward. So I want to pause right there real quick, and I want to pull out five um, irregularities in this trial before we can continue on. Um, you can actually read... Um, the whole system, the Mishnah, um, is the Jewish text that goes through and explains uh, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, what is, what, how the Sanhedrin is supposed to meet, when they're supposed to meet, when they pass laws, when they do all these different things. And according to the Mishnah, there's a couple of things that they're supposed to do when the Sanhedrin meets and when they have a trial and when they pass judgment. And there's five major things that they do not do. So for you note takers, this is interesting stuff. First of all, they're at Caiaphas's house. They're not at the temple courts. They're at Caiaphas's house, but yet the entire Sanhedrin is there. So this is the full 70 members. This means that the Sanhedrin knew very well what was happening. They knew Jesus was gonna go and be arrested, and it's the middle of the night, so they know we do not want the crowds, especially the crowds that just earlier, um, Palm Sunday, on Sunday, they saw Jesus come into Jerusalem on the donkey, and they're, they're, they're screaming and cheering joy, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They're proclaiming him to be Messiah. They don't want that crowd there. They want to pass judgment on Jesus in the dark, in the middle of the night, at his house, as opposed to at the temple courts. Uh, number two, um, this is the day before 
the Passover celebration, they never would have had a court hearing of any kind whatsoever on the day before uh, Passover. It's the night before, the day before, um, it's preparation time. They're not supposed to be doing, uh, having uh, court at that point. Number three, the U.S. Supreme Court system, the whole court system in the U.S., believes that a person is innocent until proven guilty. We've heard that over and over again. That's biblical. That is biblically based. And that is how the Sanhedrin is supposed to judge. A person is presumed innocent until proven guilty. Not in Jesus' trial. We've seen this Caiaphas from the beginning and we saw this uh, verse 59. They were looking for false evidence um, because they were looking to kill him. They are saying he's guilty, now let's prove it. Let's find liars who are willing to lie for him, uh, for them to, to prove it. Item number four, the witnesses disagree. You'll see there's one thing that they agree on, but before this, they bring all these witnesses together and not one person can have a consistent testimony. There isn't enough evidence to convict him of anything whatsoever. There's nothing that they can, can do. One thing does happen that Jesus will say, his words that he uses is blasphemy if it wasn't true. And uh, item number five, the conviction is confirmed the same day. One of the rules, and I really like this, this the Sanhedrin had, was conviction was always passed one day later after the trial had ended so that you could sleep on it. And I think that is one takeaway, one element of interpretation for today is, is that when you are in the rage of whatever an element is that you're struggling with and you are going to pass judgment or sentencing, give it a night's sleep. So when you're having an argument with your spouse, before you come to some rash decision, give it a night to sleep on. When you have some humongous decision to make, don't make it in the moment, in the passion. Take a night to sleep on it. Okay, so that is some, some context of this trial is completely not kosher. And I use that word intentionally. It is not, the, it doesn't follow what the Mishnah says. Okay, finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And we get that from John 2.19 is where Jesus said that. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Uh, for you note takers, Isaiah 53, 7. I have that just written down right next to the word silent. Isaiah 53, 7. We're going to come back to this multiple times today. Um, you don't need to flip there. I'm going to read it. Isaiah 53, 7. Last week, might have been last week, might have been the week before. I think it was last week. I read all of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is called the, uh, the gospel of the Old Testament is, is a term for it because it is completely all about Jesus. And verse, fifth, verse seven of, of chapter 53 is, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. It's something to notice throughout uh, the trial for the Sanhedrin and throughout Pilate. He's very quiet. He doesn't defend himself. Uh, he, he's very silent through the whole process. And even here, all of these accusations have been made. And the high priest is saying, what do you have to say for yourself? Then the high priest does say, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God 
tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Leviticus 5.1, that is specific law, that, that in the Levitical law, the old commandment, you are, if somebody asks you a question under oath and says that, it, it, I charge you under oath by the living God, you can't lie and you need to answer him. So Jesus then responds truthfully. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. If this were not true, this is blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Well, blasphemy is the, I think it's the third of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, it's the third of the Ten Commandments. And the idea is disrespecting God. Taking the Lord's name in vain, when people say Jesus' name in, as an insult or as a, a, an adjective, um, it's, it's blasphemy. It's taking our Lord's holy name uh, in vain and not giving it the, the authority that it deserves. We today live totally different than back then. Yahweh, uh, Y-H-W-H, is the uh, tetra, tetragram. The, I can't remember the exact word for it, but it is the four letters that the Jews used as the name of God. They wouldn't say it out loud. We add A's in between and get Yahweh. Um, anytime in your Bible you see Lord written with a capital L and then a capital O-R-D, but they're small, that is that tetragrammaton, tetragrammaton, which is the most holy name of God that is above all else. There's a level of respect. So if you claim that you are equal to God, um, you are totally disrespecting God. You are putting him in a place that, that that's blasphemy. And the punishment for blasphemy is death by stoning, according to Levitical law. So this is blasphemy, but it's true, so it's not blasphemy. He's not lying. He is telling the truth. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Caiaphas is so excited because now Jesus has said the one thing that he no longer has to come up with false testimony. He doesn't need to come up with liars to say things or trumped charges. He now has in front of everybody Jesus saying that he is God. So he's got him now. In Caiaphas' perspective, he's got him now. And now the punishment is death. He has what he wants. One element to know as far as the historical cultural context, the tearing of one's clothes, this is all throughout the Old Testament. It is done when a person is insulted or shamed or um, indignant. It is, um, those robes especially were very, very valuable. Um, and they don't have like a massive wardrobe, a massive closet full of all these clothes. So to tear your clothes is to show an outward expression of just disgust and anger and angst and it's an outward showing. So he tears his clothes and basically says, what do you guys think? I mean, he, he goes to the council now, to the whole council. What do we do with this guy now? He's committed blasphemy. Then they spit, oh, he is worthy of death, is the response. Now again, I already told you, they cannot 
pass a sentencing of death. They cannot, they, they can uh, pass the sentencing, but they can't actually execute him. This must now go to Pilate to have him be executed. The problem, he hasn't done anything that justifies corporal punishment according to Roman law. He hasn't done anything wrong. That's the challenge that Caiaphas and the uh, uh, Pharisees have. Uh, so they, uh, he is worthy of death. Then they spit on his face, struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Other gospels have that they, they covered his eyes and then smacked him. Um, they're very much disrespecting him at this point. They are physically hurting him, but it's more so they're spitting in his face. They have looked at this guy over the past three years that clearly the people love and clearly God loves as well. And they are um, just destroying him, bringing him down morally at this point, not necessarily physically. Picking up on um, 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed. And at this moment, in Luke twenty-two sixty-one, 61, Jesus and Peter make eye contact right at that moment, right after the rooster crows. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And that's Matthew 26, 34, is when Jesus prophesies of um, Peter's denial the three times. We, we spoke about that last week. I'm not going to take much time on this. The next thing we're going to talk about is Judas. And I want to say one thing just real quick. Peter goes out and wept bitterly. He weeps. He, he's mournful. And he has repentance. Repentance, the idea of repentance is to turn, is, is to stop where you're at, whatever you're doing, and completely turn and face God. A repentant heart is one who acknowledges the sin, acknowledges the error, and turns back to God. Turning back to God is the key thing of repentance. The fact that he went out and he wept bitterly. He had so much regret, but he was repentant for what he did. He wept versus Judas. Judas has regret, but I don't believe he's repentant in his heart. He goes to the Sanhedrin and says, I, I feel bad for what I did. I regret what I've done. But he doesn't seek God and he doesn't seek God's forgiveness. It's an important distinguishing element. So when you do seek God's forgiveness, acknowledging your sin, acknowledging and repenting of that is the very first step. Call it what it is and turn to God and admit what you've done. And that's what Peter does. The very instant he realizes what he's done, he just weeps bitterly. Uh, now we pick it up on chapter 27, 1. 
Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Rather than drop into his knees and, and being repentant, he has remorse, he regrets what he did, but he goes immediately to the Sanhedrin to somehow uh, be forgiven, uh, to give back the money that he took. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. I love that. I love that. I mean, this just gives you an example. It's not lawful for us to accept these 30 pieces of silver. Oh, let's go find false witnesses and false situations so we can kill this man of God. The hypocrisy, whitewashed tombs. Jesus was right in everything that he said. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. The number of prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in, in today's uh, uh, teaching is humongous. This is actually Zechariah uh, 11, 11 through 13. You can go and look that up. Okay, Jesus now goes before Pilate. And again, we must remember that the, the Jewish elders need, want Pilate to execute Jesus, but they know Jesus hasn't done anything wrong under Roman rule to deserve corporal punishment. So what they have to play after is this tension and the fact that Pilate's job is to keep the peace, to keep Roman law and rule, but to keep the Jews at, at peace, to keep the peace through everything. They, this is the one card they have that they're going to play very strong while, strongly. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? This is an interesting question because, again, Pilate is trying to, to stave off any um, unrest, any um, rioting that might happen. And if this individual is, in fact, the new leader of the Sanhedrin, the new Jewish ruler who, who speaks for the Jews, this is an issue for Rome. And this needs to be discussed. He needs to, to, to figure this out. You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they bring against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Isaiah 53, 7, yet again, he was silent like a lamb to the slaughter. <clears throat> now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. Think about that for a second. This just shows the political unrest that every Passover, Rome would release a convicted criminal to the people to keep the peace. That's a little messed up in my mind, but that's what they would do to keep the peace. So 
that's their custom. <clears throat> now, it's the governor's custom at the festival, that's Passover, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So an important thing to note there, his first name is Jesus. Jesus is, is a relatively common first name. Uh, and Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's his title. He's the Messiah. Christ is uh, the chosen one, the Messiah. Jesus is just his first name. If you were to uh, call him by his name as people would have called him from a secular perspective, he'd be Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, would have been his title, so to speak. Uh, so Jesus, and there's definitely a sermon that could be preached here on the two Jesuses. Jesus uh, Barabbas uh, versus Jesus the Messiah. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. So an important thing to note here, by this point in the day, they are at Pilate's, uh, uh, the governor's mansion, so to speak, where he lived and where um, authority was given and there are now a lot more people at this point than just the Sanhedrin. So I believe, and this is interpretation, that Pilate is hoping that he can call on the larger crowd of people that have assembled. These are the same people who just on Sunday were proclaiming the Messiah has come to Jerusalem, Hosanna in the highest. So I believe Pilate is looking for a way out of this. So his hope is, is that they will ask for Barabbas as opposed to Jesus, uh, the Messiah, and that'll be his way out is because the crowd loved him. Yeah, but the problem is, is that the Jewish leaders and the Sanhedrin had worked up the crowd against Jesus, and it's the fickleness of a crowd, right? Um, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. That one uh, element of Pilate's wife is unique to this gospel, but it does show an element of this whole situation has a huge effect. Everyone in Jerusalem is affected by what's going on. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. And I believe very strongly that at this moment, Pilate was no doubt blown away by the fact that they want him to be crucified because crucifixion, I'll read all about crucifixion in just a second. Um, it was reserved for the, the most uh, heinous of crimes. And at this point, all that he's done is claimed to be the king of the Jews, which Pilate probably thinks is just an internal matter amongst the Jews. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Okay, so now let's talk about crucifixion and what that is. 
Okay, I mentioned I mentioned it several times, but there's a great resource, um, a website called gotquestions.com. Um, I love it. It's a great resource. Um, it is uh, answers to tough questions, and they decide as a group if the response is biblically based. They are a biblically based um the inspired word of God, they do believe the Bible fully in the responses. And I haven't ever come across a response that uh, is not founded on the Bible. So I think that is a good resource um, for you when you're doing your own Bible studies is gotquestions.org. So this is gotquestions.org forward slash, forward slash crucifixion. Crucifixion was perfected by the Romans as the ultimate execution by torture. The earliest historical record of crucifixion dates back to 519 BC. Crucifixion was meant crucifixion was meant to inflict the maximum amount of shame and torture upon the victim. Roman crucifixions were carried out in public so that all who saw the horror would be deterred from crossing the Roman government. Crucifixion was so horrible that it was reserved for only the worst offenders. The victim of crucifixion was first severely scourged and, and or beaten, an ordeal that was life-threatening by itself. Then he was forced to carry the large wooden cross beam to the site of the crucifixion. Bearing this load was not only extremely painful after the beating, but it added a measure of shame as the victim was literally carrying the instrument of their own death. It was likely digging one's own grave. It was like digging one's own grave. When the victim arrived to the place of crucifixion, he would be stripped naked to further shame. Then he'd be forced to stretch out his arms on the cross beam where they were nailed in place. The nails were hammered through the wrists, not the palms. So, and it's gonna explain this in a second, but the term hand, and this is where interpretation uh, and language changes, is that you've got Greek uh, and, and Hebrew and Aramaic and these languages uh, interpreting it into English. Hand actually means, includes the wrist. So the idea is, is that the location at which they would put the, the nail was right through the wrist before you get to all those um, bones in the hand. And the reason being is, is that that way all the tension of your entire weight can go against it and it won't tear. If you were to put uh, the nail through the hand in the center of the palm, you could easily uh, see how with the full tension of the body, there's no bone here. It would just tear and rip off and the person would fall down, still alive. Um, grotesque stuff. So the, the whole marks uh, for the nails in his his hands when I get to heaven, I do believe will be in his wrists right about here. <clears throat> the placement of the nail in the wrist also caused excruciating pain as the nails pressed on large nerves running to the hands. The cross beam would then be hosted up and fastened to an upright piece that would normally remain standing between crucifixions. After fastening the cross beam, the executioners would nail the victim's feet to the cross as well normally one foot on top of the other, nailed through the middle of the arch of the foot with the knee slightly bent. The primary purpose of the nails was to inflict pain. So the idea here, and it, it goes on to describe it, but as the victim is hanging up there, uh, what ends up happening is, is they slump down and they can't breathe uh, because of asphyxiation from their arms going like this. It tightens on their airway and they can't breathe. When people die from crucifixion, 
it's from asphyxiation, from not being able to breathe. So what happens is, is that they then put weight on the, the nail that's going through their feet, excruciating pain, but they have to put the weight on them to be able to stand up enough to be able to take a breath. Once they've been able to catch that breath, they then fall back down in pain because the pain in their feet, which then replicates the cycle. So they are constantly uh, being tortured and suffocating. Once the victim was fastened the cross, all his weight was supported by three nails, which would cause pain to shoot throughout the body. The victim's arms were stretched out in such a way as to cause cramping and paralysis of the chest muscles, making it impossible to breathe unless some weight was borne by the feet. In order to take a breath, the victim had to push up with his feet in addition to endure uh, excruciating pain caused by the nail on the feet. The victim's raw back also, that's another element, but I don't know if they would notice the splinters that are going in their back from the, the exposed wood. Crucifixion usually led to a slow and torturous death. Some victims lasted as long as four days on the cross. Death was ultimately by asphyxiation as the victim lost the strength to continue pushing up their feet in order to take the breath. In order to hasten death, sometimes the victim's legs were broken, which would prevent them from lifting themselves up, and then they would ultimately die from asphyxiation. Hmm. So that's what this crowd is calling for Pilate to have Jesus go through. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. It's one of the darkest lines in the New Testament, at least, but definitely in Matthew. His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Okay, so a couple things real quick. Um, in other gospels, we do see uh, King Herod Antipas, not King Herod the Great, his son, King Herod Antipas, um, is in Jerusalem at the time of this happening. And so Pilate actually has him go, has Jesus go and be presented before King Herod. Uh, King Herod can't find anything wrong with him, and he's brought back to Pilate, which I do believe is one of the reasons why Matthew doesn't mention it, because it is somewhat inconsequential. One of the things that does happen that is mentioned is that Pilate and Herod Antipas become friends through this ordeal. Uh, flogging. Okay, another great book. This is um, Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. Um, I have a lot of books. I love my books. And I, I'm going, as, as you guys know, I'm going through a master's in biblical studies. And I have all these books. I don't like reading online or on, on the iPad. I like to have tangible books. That has no context whatsoever for the talk, but it does bring a little bit of levity. This is a new series that I just got that is a, a good number of books that the goal here is historical cultural context. One of the challenges that we face when we're interpreting the Bible, doing what's called exegesis, is the idea of uh, uh, to go in and understand what the original author intended to the original audience. And one of the key things to proper exegize a passage is understanding and looking at the historical cultural context. 
Well, we need history books then. We need to know what the life was like so that you can understand the context of why someone is saying something. So that's where this book comes in, and it's a whole series. This is um, for Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, and it just provides historical context for things. It's just different, uh, it's just additional information. So now we're gonna hear about flogging. Flogging or uh, scourging was a beating administered with a whip or rod, usually on a person's back. It was a common method, method of punishment, punishing criminals, and preserving discipline. In the Old Testament, flogging was a punishment for crime. Deuteronomy 25, one through three is a reference for that where they specifically mention this type of um, torture, uh, flogging. And later, rabbinic tradition gave extensive prescriptions for flogging offenders in the synagogue. That's in Matthew 10, 17 and Matthew 23, 34 are specific references to that but it's different from what the Romans did. Um, the Roman flogging mentioned here is quite different. It is a Latin uh, loan word used to de designate the Roman verbaradio, uh, a horrific form of flogging. Roman law required that the verbaratio, verbaratio, V-E-R-B-E-R-A-T-I-O, always accompany a capital sentence preceding the execution. So it's a torture that's always done before the death penalty is administered. Flogging in the Jewish synagogue was limited to 40 lashes by the law, Deuteronomy 25.3. But no such restriction limited Roman flogging. In many cases, the flogging itself was fatal. When the condemned man, women were not flogged, when the condemned man was tied to a post, he was flogged with the cruel flagellum. A leather strap interwoven with pieces of bone and metal that cut through the skin, leaving the skin hanging in shreds. The repeated flaying often left the bones and intestines showing. And the person was not infrequently near to points of death when he was taken to be executed. Um, for those who have seen... Uh, the Passion of the Christ. Um, I do believe that that movie does do an accurate portrayal. Um, they say that Jesus was not recognizable uh, after the flogging that he uh, went through. Um, and for me, that's the hardest part to watch in watching that movie is when they are whipping him with the flagellum and they start pulling up bone. <clears throat> okay, where am I? Um, okay, so this is verse 26. So, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus in the, into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Another thing that I did find is that it is a very common practice that the Roman soldiers would um, do this sort of uh, 
mocking and, and it was something that they did for fun. Um, in between when a person was being flogged and they're waiting to go on to the next step of whatever is happening um, to pass the time, the soldiers would do this. And it was um, very demeaning. I mean, Jesus is struggling to breathe at this point. He's bleeding and oozing everywhere in excruciating pain. And he's being mocked by the very people he came to save. And yet he's silent. Uh, verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Serene named Simon. And he forced, they forced him to carry the cross. This is, uh, as I mentioned, one of the elements is, is that the, the, the condemned person was forced to carry the beam or the cross uh, as yet an additional form of punishment is, is you are you are literally carrying your own uh, death with you. You're burying your own grave. Jesus is so weak, he can't carry it. He can't lift it because they flogged him so severely. One thing that I did read is, is that <clears throat> there is uh, one perspective that Jesus was flogged so horribly because Pilate, didn't, Pilate wanted Jesus to die quickly. Um, so that the whole ordeal would be over quickly. Pilate knew how the Jews reacted for things happening on the Passover. Um, and again, he didn't want to riot. I don't know if that's true or not, but Jesus is dying at this point, and he can't carry the cross. So this random individual is just grabbed from the crowd. Uh, he's Jewish, but he's not from Israel. He is there, as we've talked about, uh, celebrating the Passover. Um, Okay, so Simon uh, from Serene, um, so he's carrying the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. In Latin, Calvary is the word. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Uh, interpretation there, is this a nice gesture or yet another torture? If it's a nice gesture, then the wine and the, the gal that they add to it was designed to dull the pain. What likely is happening here is that uh, it's incredibly bitter and uh, designed to make a person more thirsty after they drink it as yet another form of torture. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Luke 23, 34 adds in here, Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Verse 36. Oh, sorry. Um, just a reference here. The dividing up the clothes by lots. That is a fulfillment of prophecy from uh, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 18. Verse 36. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head was placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus king of the Jews. The two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Uh, these guys were political insurrectionists, was their crime. They were Jews that were inciting uh, upheaval against Rome. 
Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their hands and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. We do see there, there is, uh, in the other gospels, you do see conversation that takes place between Jesus and um, the other two that are on the cross. And it's an interesting study to look at that. And that Jesus says um, to one of them who specifically says, remember me when you are in your kingdom, which clearly shows that he acknowledges or, or believes that Jesus is who he says he is. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Sorry, um, sabachthani. It's Aramaic. I don't speak Aramaic. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's also a fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 22, 1. Psalm 22 is a good read. It's written by King David, but when you read it, you hear Jesus talking. I recommend reading it. Psalm 22. <clears throat> when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And the reason being, Elahi or Eli, E-L-I, is the word that he says, which means, my God, my God. But you can understand how they would think he's saying Elijah because it sounds similar. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Same thing as we talked about before with the, the first drink offering. This could be either um, a gesture of goodwill to help dull the pain, or it could also be um, to further dehydrate him and, and torture him. I think it is the first of those two, that at this point um, they're having sympathy on him, but I don't know. Um, they put on a staff and offered to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now in John 19.30, excuse me, we do get what he actually says there. The word that he says is tetelestai. It's a single word. And it translates to, it is finished. It is done. The debt has been paid. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now to get some reference here on that, uh, the curtain in the temple. So you have um, in the temple itself, you have the outer courts, uh, then you have the inner courts, then you have the temple, then you have within the temple itself, you have the Holy of Holies. This is where God resided in Israel. 
this is where uh, the Ark of the Covenant was kept um, in the Old Testament when you look at the historical books, um, even in the tabernacle system that they had before um, Solomon built the first temple in the tabernacle system, you still had the Holy of Holies, which is where God resided uh, in the Old Testament. And so this place, the Holy of Holies, was God's place of where he resided to the Jews at that point. And only the high priest and only once a year on the Day of Atonement did the high priest go into the Holy of Holies um, and make... Uh, uh, sacrifices for the people's sins. This is very significant, the symbolism here. This curtain is massive. The curtain that divided is massive. It's 60 feet high by 30 feet wide, and it's made out of really, really fine thread that's woven together, and all of these strands are woven together. So imagine a curtain that is solid rope that is four inches thick. This thing is massive, and it's designed to separate humanity and mankind from the presence of God. That's the significance here. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The symbolism there is profound. This is divine. This massive curtain that you cannot tear or rip. Even an earthquake wouldn't cause such a thing to happen. It rips in two from the top to the bottom. In addition to this, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. These aren't zombies. This isn't Night of the Living Dead where there's all these zombies coming out of graves. These are res people in their resurrected state. These are people who have died, who resurrect with Jesus when he resurrects. He let free the captives from, uh, that, that, that were captive. The idea is, is that with Jesus' death, we are free. We are free from sin, from the death, the, the, the punishment that was called down for all of us. And so we will resurrect in the same way. We will have a resurrected body, and this is an example of that. So these individuals, they, you do have people that go out, and, and many people see them in Jerusalem uh, after this. An example of this uh, that, that we see in the New Testament that we saw in Matthew is on uh, uh, Mount Trans, the Mount of Transfiguration. You see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, um, and that's an example of what they would have seen, is, is that people who had died were walking around. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. We also know that Jesus' mom was there. Mary was there as well. 
We also get from John's gospel um, that Jesus does say to John, um, take care of my mom, in as many words. Basically says, woman, here's your son, and John, here's your mother. The burial of Jesus, uh, verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea uh, named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Now, an important thing to note right there, there are two individuals that we will see in here as well as in Acts that are part of the um, pharisaical system. They are Pharisees and they are members of the Sanhedrin. That is Nicodemus, which we've seen earlier, and Joseph of Arimathea. These are both individuals who realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Jewish texts. They were Pharisees. They were trying to live the pure life, and they were trying to follow the system, and they saw in Jesus that he was the Messiah. So for all the harsh words that I have against the Pharisees, there were some, and we know these two in particular, that did actually have a heart for God and try to seek him. So Joseph of Arimathea, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus, going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Two things I want to mention real quick. Three days. I've always been curious of this. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yes, that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's three days. Jesus was crucified and he died around 3 o'clock on Friday. Then you have Saturday and the morning on Sunday. Is that three days? It's an interesting question. Is, is that, that there's different interpretation of the three days. Uh, the one response, the Jewish day starts in the evening. So at sundown. So because of that, you do have three days, um, but you only have two nights. So then there's this question uh, of, was there a special Sabbath that was done not on Friday at sunset to Saturday at sunset because of the Passover, was there an additional special Sabbath? I don't care, uh, I'm sorry, but this is not a, a pertinent issue. Um, this is something that does get brought up of this question of, well, well, what day did Jesus actually die? Good Friday, did he actually resurrect on Sunday, on Easter as, as we call it, um, and I don't care 
because it does not change in any way whatsoever our interpretation of it. The important thing is, is that Jesus died and that next week we're going to talk about the fact that he doesn't stay dead and that he resurrects. And because of that, we have the ultimate hope. And we'll talk about that next week. I don't want to get onto that. One final thing to mention here, there's the movie called Risen. Risen, phenomenal movie. Um, it's not as gut-wrenching as uh, The Passion of the Christ, but I recommend watching both if you haven't seen either. Passion of the Christ is very difficult to get through for a believer, for anybody to get through. It's, it's very graphic, but uh, it'll, hit you. it'll hit you hard. Risen uh, is the story of this centurion that is given the command by Pilate to go and make secure uh, the tomb. And it's, a, it, it, it's fictional, we, but it's based on the Bible um, of this single individual centurion who, when the tomb suddenly is empty, he is tasked by Pilate to figure out where did the Jews hide Jesus' body. He must find a body. That's what his task is. He needs to find a body. Uh, and ultimately, I'm not going to spoil it for you too much, but ultimately it changes the centurion's life drastically as he goes and he actually has an encounter with the risen Christ. So that's it for this week. <clears throat> Lord, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for loving us so much that from the very foundation, the very beginning of creation, you knew that you were going to come here and that you were going to go through the torture that, that we just looked at today. Thank you. I know that personally, you went through that experience to take on the punishment that I deserve and that each person that's listening to this deserves. We are sinful, we are broken, and the Bible says there is not one who is perfect other than Jesus. We have all fallen short. The Bible also says that the punishment for sin is death, separation from God, eternal torment. That's what I deserve. That's what the people listening deserves. That's what all mankind deserve. But you loved us so much that you gave your one and only son that he would be that punishment for us, that he would experience that, that he would take that punishment, that punishment that we deserve, that, that hell that we deserved, that separation from God, that, that you would come down to earth and live and die and die a torturous death, all for me so that I can 
be united back with you? To simply say thank you seems so... It's just not enough. But thank you, Lord. I pray that the significance of that sacrifice that you made will be very heavy on the hearts of the people who are listening to this and watching this now. If they're watching this the week that this airs, Easter is coming up. It's, it's just over a week away. And I pray, Lord, that, that this will be heavy on their hearts. Good Friday, what you did will be heavy on all of our hearts, Lord. I am so thankful for Sunday in the empty tomb. Thank you, Lord. And the hope that that gives me, we love you, Lord, and we praise you, and we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Next week is gonna be so exciting, so uplifting. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen from the grave, and because of that, we have so much hope, and we can go out our lives here on earth living in that hope. Thank you for enduring this. Uh, I hope that it was meaningful. Uh, and next week, we wrap up uh, this entire study on Matthew. I'll see you next week. <laughs>